you don't expect anything like this ever. You just woke up one morning and kind of lost her voice and wasn't feeling good. And then by the end of the week, I was taking her into the ER and we didn't make it out for quite some time. And it's, it's something that you'd never expect. You just think, okay, some, she's got a cold or something like that. She'll be fine in a few days. And that's just not the way it went. She just kind of went downhill and got worse and worse and worse to a point where, you know, she couldn't hold her head up and was throwing up even these little tiny pills that they'd given her and, and something, I knew something wasn't right. I didn't know what it was, but uh, I knew I had to get her in to get some higher care. And that's kind of what started it all. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. I'm Maddie, your host, speaker, and very passionate speech-language pathology advocate. You are listening to the Speechless SLP series with Vanessa Abraham, and you get a unique perspective in each one of these episodes on her journey being the speechless SLP in the ICU bed, unable to talk. So welcome to this series of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. Glad you are here. Sit back, take a listen. So welcome to this episode of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. We are diving deep into another discussion with Vanessa Abraham, our speechless SLP. And we're joined tonight by her husband, Dale, who's going to offer such a unique perspective on what it's like being the spouse of someone who is speechless and in a bed and not able to communicate. Welcome, both of you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Maddie. This whole series is about storytelling and what it's like and sharing perspectives. And the reason we're doing this is to help us be better at our jobs as speech pathologists. So jumping right on in, Dale, can you tell me your perspective, your side of the story when one day everything was all right and then Vanessa said she wasn't starting to feel well and then what happened? Yeah, it was one night I was supposed to go back up to work um, and she called me to see if I could get a prescription and basically went down and picked up the prescription, got it to her. And they were the tiniest pills I've ever seen. And they were anti-nausea pills and she couldn't get them down and she couldn't get down. I knew something was wrong. I didn't go back to work. I called my boss and let him know. All right. So you, you brought her into the emergency room and she was just significantly medically declining. Yeah, she was getting worse and worse and worse, and they just didn't know what was going on. Pretty scary feeling to to be in somewhere where you think they're going to be able to help you, and they just couldn't figure out what was going on. What type of a length of a time span are we talking about? Two in the morning till we were there for probably four days from Sunday morning at 2 a.m. till I think it was Wednesday or Thursday that she was transferred to UCSD. Okay. Thoughts of what emotions were going through your mind? You know, it's just more you're scared, you're worried. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on. The doctors don't know what's going on. She's going down, getting worse. And, you know, to see her in the condition she was, it's almost unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody who's thriving and then all of a sudden they're semi-conscious, if at all. Um, It was really tough. Just heartbreaking. Do you remember any words of comfort during this time or any conversations that someone said to you as you were waiting to see how everything was going to roll out that really stuck with you and it was comforting to hear? Not really, because at that point I was spending pretty much the entire time with her. I think the first 
well, the first morning and all that next day. And then the next night I spent in the hospital with her, I just slept in a chair next to her bed. Yeah. I, I didn't leave the hospital until uh, they would kick me out when she was in the ICU. You mm-hmm. hours. So at 10 o'clock at night, they'd kick me out until six o'clock the next morning. And I bet you were there at six. I would, yeah, I was there about <laughs> five. five. <laughs> Excellent. So I know you were thrust from your your role that you played in your family into that of being a primary caregiver. Can you discuss with us what that was like? Well, the hardest part is when she couldn't communicate. You, know, when you don't know what's going on with her. You don't know what she's feeling. You don't know what she's hearing and comprehending. You don't know how much pain she is, where it hurts, what hurts. You don't really know what's going on. And they can look at her vitals and they can say, well, this is good. This is not good. We're concerned about this. But when you can't communicate, it's the hardest thing in the world. And you just you feel somewhat helpless, not necessarily hopeless, but for sure helpless. I was out with my son the other night, who's a nurse, and he says something like what you just said, Dale, the fact that all we can read are the vital signs and maybe the eyes, and you know her so well, did you knowing her extra well, better than the medical staff, give you an edge with what she was feeling, her pain levels, what she needed? I don't think so. I think she was so drugged at that point um, that it made it hard to see that, and her eyes were kind of glassed over, and she was pretty much eyes closed the whole time. At that point, I didn't even know if she could understand what I was saying or comprehend me or hear me. Pretty helpless feeling. Okay. So you're using, you're trying to use the AAC with her. You have a system that is an eye gaze system, Vanessa? Yeah. Alphabet board? Um, at this point, it was, I was all in eye gaze. All right. And the eye gaze was pointing to what, what icons? Um, yes, no, and some letters. Okay. So long periods of time to form a communication exchange. It was 10 minutes to get out the word pain. My goodness. And, and by that time, you could have some pain medicines on board. Mm-hmm. It was, took a long time to communicate. That's the thing. And, and she knew what she was doing, necessarily know what I was doing. But yeah, even that, even with a patient that really knows what they're doing, right. it takes a long time. So what words of wisdom do you have for anybody who's listening to this podcast to give to the spouse who has somebody in are trying to communicate? You just need to be extremely patient and attentive, right? And I think you can't communicate like normal. It takes a long, long time, and you just have to be as patient as you possibly can. You can't get frustrated. You have to encourage. Uh, she would get, I'm sure, frustrated with me because I wasn't picking up as quickly as maybe she she could go there. But it's just one of those things that it takes a long time, and you just have to stay at it, be positive, and just know that eventually you're going to figure it out. So breathe, count, wait. Right, exactly. Wait, pause. Mm-hmm. For me, I felt like I wasn't frustrated with them not getting it. I was more frustrated with myself that I was in the situation that I couldn't communicate to them. I was never frustrated that they never got it. It was more it was more on me like I was frustrated that I couldn't readily or easily tell them what I wanted to do. And I felt like I was letting them all down. That's a very important perspective. A very important perspective because then as we stand by the bedside of somebody who is 
speechless, we can reaffirm that it's, that it's not them that's failing, that it's, a, it's the system is not developed and responsive to the setting per se. I, I think that's so important because mm-hmm. you assign blame to anybody. It's just, right. it is, you're trying your best. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's trying their best. Yeah. Everybody is trying both parties. You know, I was, I was trying my best to communicate slowly so they could understand. But I know in me that there was a lot of just guilt of, you know, look what I've, I've brought them into this and now they're getting frustrated. And it's in a way it was kind of like, I was started to blame myself. Like what am I bringing on to my family? So much guilt and shame associated with it all. With the the getting sick and the the communication difficulties, communication difficulties of mm. it's a very frustrating process, especially when you're very you're cognitively intact. You know mm. what's and you know that they're trying to be patient with you. You're trying to be patient with them, and I honestly think that they were much more patient with me than I was patient with them or with yourself even yeah i was i was frustrated you know it's a lot of lot of anger and like i said before just that guilt of oh boy you know i'm bringing them into this they don't deserve this now you had communication difficulties when things were calm and you had 10 minutes to spell the word pain was there ever a time when there was more of a medical emergency or need to quickly communicate something well they would communicate with me more i don't think she she wasn't at a point where she could make a medical decision anyways so to me um and especially by the time she got to ucsd which was only a period of like three and a half days four days and their care the care there was amazing but um at that point it was all through me and i was making all the medical decisions for what they could and couldn't do and some of the stuff that was going on any necessary communication i was there pretty much 16 plus hours a day do rounds with them in the morning um, and talk to the doctors ask them questions i was fortunate enough to have several doctors as clients um and of mine that i was able to talk to um and get mm-hmm. some them which was was huge um without that without their help it would have been a massive struggle so what is somebody to do when they're faced in this situation, any strategies, any approaches? For which part? For f- untangling the decisions, focusing on understanding what's being said to you, and then making those decisions and understanding everything. Well, you, uh, yeah, that, I mean, you just have to be aware. You have to ask questions in a very nice, very respectful, polite way, because you're talking to professionals that are, are some of the best doctors um, in the country, but at the same time, they didn't know what was going on. So mm-hmm. uh, asking the right types of questions, being involved in the rounds, and they were, gr- they were great. They'd let me be there every morning when they would meet. I'd step out of Vanessa's room. I'd meet and hear what they had to say about her, what was going on. They'd review it. And it was kind of almost like being a little bit of a medical student, even though I, you know, mm-hmm. but, and then I'd go research it when I could. And I'd look online and I'd try to find out these symptoms and this and that. And, and then I'd ask questions and I'd try to get them thinking about different things. So 
it's a huge team effort. And it, it really was the team there that, that helped us. Did you feel included as a team member, as a, an important stakeholder in the decisions and everything happening? Yes. Yeah, I did. They would ask me for my for permission if they had to do anything they have to anyway um, at that point because I was there pretty much all the time and they would include me in decisions. And then there came a point where I would I started asking them about options um, and they might not even have been discussing some of them, but it was some of the things that that I was kind of wondering about. And they were open to hearing, especially when they didn't know what was going on. If, mm-hmm. if anything that can help them, they were, they were willing to listen to anything. They were very open to him attending rounds too, which was so wonderful. It really helped us build trust with them. And, and my team knew that he was very involved. He was asking questions. He was asking very good. Like, he, like Dale said, he was researching things and he was asking questions and, and they would, doctors would tell me like, he's asking really good questions. He's bringing up really good points. And it very much was a team effort. And you know, him going to rounds and them and them encouraging him to go to rounds too. And hearing all the information that the team of doctors was presenting was, was really valuable. So I hear you saying several strategies. One of them is present yourself as part of the team and advocate for yourself as needed. Be respectful and professional in your communication with them. Extremely important. Yeah. Why do you, why do you say that? Well, I just think in today's world, just in general, we have to make sure that even if our opinions differ, that we are respectful of other people mm-hmm. and they're the experts. I'm not the expert in the medical mm-hmm. field by any means, no mm-hmm. strict imagination. And I don't, didn't want them to ever feel like I was trying to step on their toes mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. I would always try to word things the right way. So just as a question, can you help me understand this? Can, what about this? Is, could this even be a possibility? And they would always and I don't think I ever offended them with any of the questions that I asked. I think they were open to the to it, and they would help. And if it was helpful, they'd great. And if it wasn't on the right track, they'd tell me that too. So very much a collaborative approach. And that's what they do there. When it's a big medical school like that, they have a huge team, and everybody's trying to figure things out. Do your own research. Do your own thinking. Ask the questions that you need to ask. Search out mm-hmm. for resources. Those are some excellent strategies. And be your the, your own advocate. I mean, Nesta mm-hmm. couldn't advocate for herself, so it had to be me. And I was there to help advocate for her. And when we left there and went to the next place, for sure, I mean, my, my level of involvement at UCSD is what I think helped her make it through the next place. Otherwise, I don't know that she would have made it. Wonderful. They helped me understand how to do things for her. They taught me how to use her feeding tube. They taught me how to do so many things just for her. And and getting her to a point where she knew I was there all the time, I think it helped alleviate some of the anxiety, much, but a little bit of it. And there was comfort in the fact that the people were professionals and especially at UCSD again, where she could trust them. And, and when I went to go grab something to eat for 10, 15 minutes, she wouldn't be worried about it. She knew she was in great hands. And then when they'd kick me out at night, I knew that she was in good hands and she knew that she was in good hands. And I always stayed late enough to make sure, I think they had shift change around eight or nine and I always stayed till 10 or 11 so that she knew exactly who was coming on and who her night nurse was going to be. And they knew me and they had all my contact info and all that stuff. So just that whole team approach and 
just trying to be a very respectful member of the team while still advocating for her is really the key to the whole thing. The staff really had a lot of respect for him too. It was, it was definitely a two way street. You know, we had a lot of respect for them and what they were doing and the level of care that they were providing, but the way Dale was involved, the way he was asking questions, the way he was assisting the staff, it was definitely a two way street when it comes to respect. So there was a point in time where Vanessa was, when she was extubated, she had a medical instability event and they had to physically remove you from the room. Can you share with us your perspective on that? Yeah, that was tough. You don't want to leave. And I was holding her hand right at her bedside and um, they got to a point where they were going to have to intubate her again. And they don't let anybody other than the immediate, you know, necessary medical team in the room. Um, and so they basically pulled me out and said, you got to leave. And you know, at that point, I didn't want to, but I knew I had to for her to get the treatment that she that she needed. And when I say needed, she, it was a necessity. I mean, it was a medical necessity. It absolutely had to be. Um, but it's tough to leave, especially when somebody's so frightened and right. kind of not being able to breathe. Right. Yeah. So for somebody who does have to come up to you and say, we need you to leave your wife's side or your loved one's side, what are the best words to use? Boy, um, at that moment, I don't, I don't think the words matter as much as maybe the delivery. To me, they said, listen, you have to go. Now we need to do this. They won't do it while you're here. We need to take you outside the room. And I, you know, I went outside the room. I went about one step outside the room. Um, and waited until they were done. And immediately when they said I could go back in, I went back in and held her hand and reassured her and made her know that I was there and I wasn't leaving and she was going to be okay. The part that strikes me the most that gives me goosebumps is it's not what they said, but how they said it. Yeah, I think that's really important in communication, right? A lot of it is not necessarily what you say, but how you say it. And they were they were great about it. Um, and I, I knew it. You could I could see I was right there. I knew what was going on mm-hmm. well, and I knew knew what was going to have to be done. Now it's a pretty scary thing to witness, um, especially when you're not used to the medical stuff and seeing some of the stuff I saw. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in a in an ICU um, that you just are not used to. So stepping forward, Vanessa's medically stable. She's getting ready to move to. You're getting ready to move to a a rehab facility, Vanessa. What type of work, Dale, how did you begin deciding where to go? There wasn't a whole lot of decision to it. Uh, It's kind of what your insurance will let you do. Um, So the first one, because she was still on a respirator, there was only basically one place that she could go. And unfortunately, that one, the care there, um, and I don't think it was the nurses. I don't want to blame anybody fault-wise. But I think they were just way understaffed and overloaded. And there was just so many things that went on there that were just horror stories that, you know, they would kick me out at, I think there it was nine o'clock and it was about an hour and a half from, from where I was staying or our house. So I'd drive home every night and I'd be back at six in the morning when they let me in. I would stay as late as I possibly could until the security guard would come in and kick me out. One of the scariest points was I just didn't know if she'd make it through the night every night. I can't imagine leaving a loved one in with those fears. Were you aware of this, Vanessa? Oh, yeah. What was that like for you? 
I'm not even sure I can describe the level of fear. But you trusted Dale. Oh, absolutely. That, that he would figure this out. Absolutely. Trust 100%. But as soon as he was gone, can't even go there. Like, what would go through my mind? And we don't need to go there. As soon as she was off the respirator for 24 hours, I had her out. And I had been waiting to get her out of there. And that's where, when you know there's something wrong, and you'll, and for any caregiver, you know when they're not being taken care of properly and you can't get the help and you go out and you look for help and it takes you 30, 40 minutes to find somebody or you can't find anybody at all. Um, and you just know it. And I think the admissions person there, as much as the people at UCSD liked me, I think the admissions lady there didn't like me at all because all I wanted to do was get Vanessa out of there. And as soon mm-hmm. as, as soon as she was medically cleared to leave, she was out within a, a couple hours. So what do you say to, I know we have SLPs who work in facilities like that. Since I've been more vocal about the recording of these, I've had a number of SLPs come forward and say, yes, I was sick and it was horrible. How do we change the system? That's the whole purpose of this podcast is to have these conversations to change the system as much as we can in our own corner of the world. Right. I think if you're one of the people that's working in one of those facilities and you know that you're completely overworked and there and there's not enough care and the care is bad, I think you've got to go and and let people hire up know. Let people know what's going on. I know one of the nurses I talked to that uh, had her mom in one of those that same facility, she wrote letters to the, I think it's the ombudsman and some of the different uh, authorities to let them know what was going on. I, I didn't go that far. Um, I let the staff know there mm-hmm. that here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what, uh, what worries me about my, for my wife, especially when I leave at night. And I think at one point I tried to get them to let me stay there at night, but they just wouldn't, weren't going to bend the rules there. But you know, it, yeah, it's a scary feeling. It, it's terrifying when you just don't know what's happening. And it's not like, she was in a point where she's not sleeping all night and it was only little fit bits in here and there. And she was up for a lot of the night, not being able to comfort her. I know was just adding to the anxiety of not knowing what's going on and, and not having somebody there to take care of her. So not accepting the fact that things have to stay the way they are advocating no. for our profession adv- advocating for those we work with stepping forward to make a change and believing we can make a change. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. Last question. Any words of advice for other care partners that are just starting the journey that you two have been on? Yeah, I think we've gone over it, but be patient, be aware and be involved and be respectful of all the health professionals. But at the same time, don't just take their word on everything. Do your own research and and become knowledgeable in whatever's going on so that you can make informed decisions because uh, there was a lot of times I had to make decisions that if I hadn't had the resources I had and, and learned a lot of the stuff that I did, those decisions wouldn't have been very informed. And I think that helps you understand what's going on. So just stay involved and be respectful of everybody, but do your best to be involved and make the best decisions you can. And any shout outs to uh, specifically to speech pathologists who work in the medical setting? Yeah, there were some great ones. We we were involved with several at UCSD that were fantastic. Um, Sherry at Eisenhower was wonderful. 
later on. But yeah, they were they were all really good. The speech pathologists were great. They were not one of the ones that we had any any kind of problems with at all. And um, not that we had that many problems with any of them, but the speech pathologists were fantastic, especially from my perspective and how they dealt with her and how understanding they were. And then when they knew that she was a speech pathologist, you could just mm-hmm. see or broken for. Her. Right. One of our own. Yeah. And I heard that that saying on that phrase a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's true. Vanessa, what was it like laying in the bed, hearing these conversations that were going on about you between your husband and the medical personnel? What was that like? Obviously terrifying, that word comes to mind, but um, depressing, sad, sad for myself that I couldn't participate in these conversations myself. I remember just blankly staring at the people with a thousand thoughts running through my head and wanting to ask, is this my forever? What's my prognosis? Am I going to die? And I couldn't. It's terrifying. Okay. And what could we have said to you at that point in time? I don't know, because it's not like anybody knew these thoughts were going through my mind. That's why we're having this conversation. You know, because we we've not been in the bed. We've not been where you are. And I want you to put words to what you were thinking. So when we walk in those rooms and we work with people like you, we understand more of their perspective. I think human contact is huge, you know, like holding their hand, being the sunshine for them. You know, being encouraging. That person can't talk or ask questions and they are terrified beyond belief. Like, there's nothing to describe the level of fear in their mind. And just having somebody probably come up to you and hold your hand. And, you know, even if you say you're going to be okay, and even though you may, the person may not, I don't know, but just being that sunshine to them that somebody that comes in your room and smiles and holds you or comforts you or makes you feel human. That's excellent. Now you're writing a book. You're calling it what? Speechless. And more details will be in the book about all of this. So thank you both for your time today for coming on. Appreciate you sharing your stories and your perspectives and wading through the, the, the icky parts of this journey. Thank you for sharing because we're going to learn from it. Thank you. Thank you. So, hey, SLPs, that concludes this episode of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. Please visit my website at freshslp.com. Follow me on Instagram or jump on Facebook to connect in our safe and friendly Fresh SLP community where we are empowering new and transitioning SLPs. If you found value in this episode or in any way had an aha moment or I gave you a fresh perspective, please show me some SLP love and support me on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app or subscribe to me on YouTube. You got this.